Well, good evening. We've come back here tonight because we love the Lord. We've come back here together to lift up our voices and song to Him, to praise Him, and to study from His Word. I invite you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. That will be the text for our study together tonight. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 1. And again, I'll not be using an overhead presentation, and I will be reading from the New King James Version. So I'm going to try to make my points very clear and easy to follow for those of you who are taking notes and for everybody that's listening. It's a lot easier to follow when they're easy to follow. And so what we're going to be talking about tonight is something that I have found very helpful in in my walk with the Lord. It's something that I had an interest in shortly after I became a Christian. What we're going to be talking about tonight is how to secure your salvation. We're going to be talking about how to secure your salvation. I mentioned earlier this afternoon how that I was 20 years old when I became a Christian. I've been living in the world. I had been hanging with the wrong people. In fact, I was a front man, a singer in a country rock band in the nightclubs of Chicago. And you can imagine the life that went with that. I was having a lot of fun. But I was lying on my bed at night asking the Lord to take my life and change it. Penny and I became Christians. We left that life behind and we became Christians. And I think that I can truly say, I love the Lord. I had found a wonderful life. What I had been living and what I had found was no comparison and no regrets of leaving it all behind. But a few months passed by and I'd done some things that were wrong, nothing major. They were sin and I knew it. And I began to be concerned. The day I was baptized into Christ, I knew my sins were washed away and I knew I was saved. And I knew that if the Lord came back, I was going to heaven. But after a few months, I began to wonder, if Jesus comes back, is He going to be pleased with me? If He comes back, am I going to go to heaven? And I think there are a lot of Christians that are living their lives with those very thoughts. In fact, there are a lot of people who would say there's no way we can know if we're going to go to heaven or not. There's no way that we can know if our relationship is secure with the Lord. And I want to suggest to you that that flies in the face of what God wants for us. How can we shout out with those early Christians, Lord Jesus, come, when we're not sure if we're ready for His coming? How can we cry out, Maranatha? How can we beg the Lord to return when we're worried about our relationship with Him. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. How can I know if I'm going to heaven? How can I walk out of that building tonight, this building tonight, and know that if Jesus comes, I am going to go to heaven? I believe that the Scriptures make it clear. And I believe that we all can walk out of here knowing our relationship with the Lord. Turn with me, if you haven't yet, to Second Peter chapter 1. We're going to see from God's Word Himself exactly what He tells us to do to make our salvation secure, to make our relationship right with Him. But back to that story as you are are turning over there if you haven't. 
Back to that story, I remember asking the preacher after a few months, Alan, can you know if you're going to heaven or not? He said, well, sure you can know. I said, oh, great, how do you know? He said, well, Paul knew that he was going to go to heaven, so we can know that we're going to go to heaven. What a letdown. (laughs) That didn't help me a bit. But unlike many people, and praise the Lord for those of you who have been raised by godly parents, who have taught you the Bible, you have studied the Bible since you were an infant, Betty and I were reading the Bible for the first time. We were hearing beautiful songs for the first time in our lives. We were finding Bible passages that we had never read before. And it's not the one we're going to look at right now. We will look at it in a few moments. But I remember running across a passage. In fact, it was 1 John chapter 1. And he told us that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I remember the, 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 the reassurance that I, I found in that. There's my answer. There's how I can know whether or not I'm going to heaven. But let's turn, or I guess you've already turned there since I've asked you three times. Let's take a look in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 5 beginning. Now in verse verses 1 through 4, he's giving an introduction. And as he along with Paul and others would write, he, he, he spoke to them and, or wrote to them and saying, Grace and peace, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now let's pause before we go into our text. He tells us here that that God has given to us great and precious promises and that by these promises, we can escape the pollution, the corruption, sin that is in the world and that we can be secure, if you will, in our salvation with Him. Now, what I want us to consider is that God, no doubt, has done His part. We talked about last hour our last hour together, how that He wants us to be saved. He yearns for the salvation of all the lost. And He doesn't save us wanting to turn around and condemn us. He wants to save us and to keep us saved. And so He's given us precious promises. He has done His part. He has given Jesus His Son and our Savior. And He's told us what to do in order to find forgiveness in Him. Now what I want us to notice is that though He has done His part, He expects us to do our part. Read with me verse 5. He says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. When He says giving, giving all diligence, this word giving is a simple word that means to bear in alongside, to introduce simultaneously. Introduced simultaneously to what? To lay in alongside what? To what God has done. God has done His part. Now, you lay in alongside your part. You, giving all diligence. And diligence means that we do it with earnestness. That we do it with zeal. That we do it in, in uh, uh, full effort so that we can supply our part. And so we are to give 
our part with all diligence. Now, here's the part that really jumped out at me when I started digging in to this text and taking a look at what it says. There's a word here that stands out very, very vividly. He says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. This word add, the word that it's translated from is the only place here in Second Peter that is found in the New Testament Scriptures. This word add is the word, in, and I'm going to stab at it, I don't know Greek, but it's important, I think, it's worth mentioning. It's the word epikoriego. It means to furnish besides, that is, to fully supply. And so he says, giving all diligence, add to your faith. Now, when you hear that word, epikoreigo, can you pick out an English word in there? That's where we get our word, choir, chorus, choral. It's interesting, the etymology of this word. It's a word that originally meant to bear the expense of a course, to lead a choir, to keep in tune, and then it came simply to mean to supply or provide. And so in the beginning, this word meant to supply a course. It's kind of like dads. When our daughters get married, who provides the entertainment at the wedding? It's our job to supply the entertainment along with the rest of the wedding as well. And so, not just for weddings or whatever it might have been, but that's what this word originally meant, to supply the chorus. You are, you are supplying it for the event. But then it came to mean to lead the chorus. And so the idea is, is that as you're leading the chorus, you're bringing in the various parts. You're adding the parts in the music that you have chosen. And then it just simply came to mean to keep in tune and then to supply or provide. Now here's the interesting part of it. The Spirit, whether this was the reason that He chose this word in this place or not, when you think about all the things that Peter goes on to mention that we are to add to our faith, when we add these things, when we give all diligence to add our part, and we bring in virtue and knowledge and self-control, the things that we're going to see. It's like a choir director. As he is leading the choir, and he, he starts out maybe with the sopranos, and then he brings in the bass, or like some of the songs, maybe one we just sang. The, the bass start out, and then the, the director brings in the, the sopranos, and then he may bring in the tenors and add the, the altos to it. And as he's bringing all these parts together, it flows in harmony to make a beautiful song. When we add to our faith virtue, and knowledge, self-control, it adds harmony and beauty to our life. And we find ourselves walking in the grace of God. And so, what we're going to see in this text tonight is what we need to do, what we need to add, and if we will do these things, we can have a strong and secure relationship with the Lord. Reading from the New King James Version, let's begin in verse 5, and I'm going to read down through verse 11. Verses 5 through 11. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, 
Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance um, godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you see the promise that He made us there? If you will do these things, you will never stumble. And an entrance will be supplied to you. Supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's spend a few moments. Let's look at these things that we need to add to our faith so that we can make sure that our lives are right with God. Again, back in verse 5, he says, Add to your faith virtue. This word virtue, and so if you're taking notes, our next next few points are just going to be these words that he, he gives us, these characteristics that we are to add to our faith. The word virtue is just simply a word that means moral excellence or goodness. As I'm studying with people and, and having uh, home studies and helping people to learn what they need to do to be saved, we go over this text in our fourth lesson on the cost of discipleship what it means to be a disciple and what we have to give up to be a disciple. And, and as I'm explaining this, and people, I always try to teach by asking questions. And when we read this and I ask them what the word virtue means, sometimes they struggle because it's not in their vocabulary. They've heard it before. But to, to maybe explain in their own words what it means, they struggle. And so I just simply tell them in words that I would have understood at 20 years old. It means to clean up your life. <laughs> It means to stop doing the things that are contrary to God's will. Quit sinning. And so he says that we are to add to our faith virtue. It also means a virtuous course of thought, feeling, and action. A virtuous course of thought. We've got to get those thoughts out of our mind that are not holy, that are not right, that are not according to godliness. It's a virtuous course of thought and of action, or feeling, and action. When we have feelings that are contrary to the character of a Christian, when we're thinking, when we're thinking angry thoughts and bitter thoughts that that are not justified, and there's never a place for bitterness. When we're thinking lustful thoughts, we're having those feelings. We need to get rid of those. We need to pursue virtue and virtuous action. That our deeds, the things that we do are morally excellent. We're admonished in Philippians chapter 4, and keep a marker here in Second Peter, we will return several times. But in Philippians chapter 4, he gives us instruction as to how to make sure that what we are thinking is godly. I remember when I was working in secular work before I became a preacher. I didn't start preaching until I was 30 years old. And when you're working with people in the world, a lot of things are said that our ears should not hear. 
And I remember when those thoughts would come back through my mind, I would say, no, no. Philippians chapter 4, 6 through 8. And what he tells us here, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and mind. Minds through Jesus Christ. Now verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And so I remember when, when thoughts would come into my mind, and I still do. Thoughts would come into my mind, or do come into mind, and, and, and I have to fight them just like you do. You have to resist it. Is this pure? Is this praiseworthy? Is this honorable? And so we have, an, we have a test that God has given us to know what we should allow in our hearts and in our minds. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, we're told there that we are to abstain every form of evil. Now, here's the point. We are to think pure thoughts and we are to have pure actions. We are to have morally good actions. And when we're, believe it or not, I was young a few years ago, but the point is, is that when you're trying to live as a godly person, and I don't have to tell you, you're living it. Do you have people make fun of you? When I, when I became a Christian, I was hanging with all the wrong people before I became a Christian. And my buddies used to, again, I was 20 years old when I became a Christian. My buddies used to put beer cans in my back seat thinking they were going to get me in trouble with my wife. They're going to resist us. They're going to give us a hard time. They're going to maybe even ridicule us and turn against us. And so, another important aspect of this idea here that we are to add virtue is that it takes courage. And not only does this word carry with it the idea of moral goodness and excellence, it also carries with it the idea of moral vigor, the manliness to determine and determination to do what is right. It takes strength, does it not? When your friends are swearing, when your friends are telling dirty jokes, it takes strength to get up and walk away. It takes strength to say, that's not good. That, that's not the way we ought to talk. Why are you saying that? That takes courage. That takes strength. And that's all bound up in this word virtue here. When we begin to question our relationship with God, when we begin to worry and to wonder if Jesus comes again, I'm not sure if I'm going to go to heaven. What are we doubting? Are we doubting God that He's going to keep His promise? Are we doubting Jesus that He's going to save us? Are we doubting ourselves? Are we doubting, I'm not living the way I should. I'm not being holy like I ought to be. It's ourselves we're doubting. And it takes courage. It takes determination in order to stand up against those things that are sinful. We noted earlier, Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, he said that the grace of God, 
that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness. The New New International Version says, teaching us to say no. Just say no to ungodliness. To virtue, back in 2 Peter chapter 1, to virtue, to moral goodness, he tells us that we are to add knowledge. Word knowledge is word gnosis. By itself, this word signifies in general just intelligence, understanding. But here, according to there, it's used in the sense of moral wisdom as is seen in right living. And so, when we are to add knowledge, we may think that what that's saying, well, we need to read our Bibles. We need to add knowledge. Yes, that's how we gain knowledge. And it's knowledge of God's Word that we want. But this word means more than that. This word knowledge is a word that means, once again, it means I found it, but I'm just gathering the rest of my thoughts since I paused. Might as well take advantage of it. It's used in the sense of moral wisdom as is seen in right living. It's worked out in our lives. We know and we act upon that knowledge. In Ephesians 5, verse 17, Ephesians 5, verse 17, he speaks here about the wisdom that we are to gain from God. He says, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So that's not talking about just reading our Bibles. It's talking about gaining a knowledge of what God's will is. Well, let me read it again. Verse 17, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Back up with me to verse 10. He says that we are to be finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. This is the knowledge that we're looking for. We're looking for the knowledge of what God's will is. And we gain that in the Bible, but not just simply by reading it, by digging in and looking for what God wants us to know and what God wants us to do. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14, Hebrews 5 and verse 14, he says, "...the solid food belongs to those who are full age." Hebrews 5.14 Solid food belongs to those who are full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And so we take God's Word and we put it into practice. We draw conclusions from God's Word. Let me illustrate. There's nowhere in the Bible that you're going to read, do not abort babies. But by our knowledge of God's Word, we put it together and we understand, we exercise our senses to be able to discern both good and evil. Is it right to abort a baby? Of course not. You are taking a life. You are committing murder, if you will. And so, this knowledge is knowledge that is seen in right living when we add knowledge to our virtue, there's harmony that is brought in our relationship with God and in our lives. In verse 6 of 2 Peter chapter 1, he says that to knowledge we are to add self-control. When you look this word up in the original language, it means (laughs) self-control. 
And so it's not a deep definition, not a deep subject. But I do like what Guy in Wood says about it in his commentary. He says it means one who holds himself in. That's what self-control is. It's controlling yourself, but it's holding yourself in. At times when you might want to say something that, that you're angry and you want to lash out, you need to hold yourself in. Bite your tongue because maybe you might feel differently about it in a few more minutes. Or when you have a desire to, to go to a website that you ought not to go to, control yourself. Hold yourself in. And so in all aspects of life, we have to learn, we must add self-control. We must learn to hold ourselves in, to control ourselves. Because if we don't, then we're not going to be acting out, living out the knowledge that we've gained in showing that in a morally good life. And so we must hold ourselves in. It denotes self-discipline, the ability to control desires and actions. Paul illustrated it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verses 25 through 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 25 through 27. He said in verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body, and I bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now he speaks about those who compete, and he says how that they are temperate in all things. So you think about one who is competing. Maybe they're competing... In the Olympics. And so they don't go home at night and sit in front of the television and eat a half a gallon of ice cream. They don't lay around all week long. They have to control themselves. They have to hold themselves in. And by doing so, they are able to make themselves competitive. It's not that the kingdom of God that we're competing against one another. The point that he's making is that we learn to control ourselves like the athlete must control himself to be competitive. In verse 6, he also tells us that to self-control, we are to add perseverance. Perseverance comes from a word that means endurance, but it means more than endurance. Perseverance means to hang in there, to not give up. But this word that is used there carries another element with it. Hopeful or cheerful endurance. I don't like this. I don't like it and I'm having to really struggle. I'm having to put a lot of effort in. But I'm glad to do it because that's the difference between endurance and hopeful endurance. If we walk with the Lord, if we do God's will, we are going to see Him as we sang in, Oh, magnify my Master. We are going to see Him face to face. We are going to see Him in His glory. There is a day coming when Jesus is going to return, when we're going to rise from this world, we're going to meet Him in the air, and we're going to go to be with Him and see the face of God. That's why we bear up. 
That's why we hold up. And so this idea of perseverance, it means to bear up or to hold up. It actually comes from a word that means to be underneath, to bear up from underneath. I think of it sometimes because I do a lot of work on houses. Mine, we usually buy a junker and fix it up. And so I usually think of it as like when you crawl, go into the crawl space underneath the house. Anybody ever gone in underneath the house in a crawl space? Raise your hand if you have. You ever been underneath that? And so you see these blocks if it doesn't have a basement. It's got these blocks all under there, different piers. And so the whole job of that pier is to spend its whole life holding up the house. That's the idea of perseverance. You're bearing up underneath. You're enduring underneath. But we're doing it cheerfully. We're doing it hopefully because of what God has promised us. In Hebrews chapter 12, In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, he speaks again of this same matter. He says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. You're going to enjoy that verse when we get to it in our next point. I get a little ahead of myself. You're going to think, haven't you ever preached this sermon? Yes, quite a few times. The point that I really wanted to make is the idea of hopeful or cheerful endurance is found in Acts chapter 16 with the perfect example of Paul and Silas, and pardon me, forgive me, but of Paul and Silas when they had been cast into prison because they had... They had cast the demon out of the servant girl and the owner's hope of gain was was gone. And so they brought charges against them. They beat them severely. They put their feet into stocks. They put them into the inner prison. And then verse 25, he says, But at midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They had to endure. They had to persevere. They were put into prison after being severely beaten. But instead of moaning and complaining and being bitter and negative, they were praising God. They were singing hymns and praying and the other prisoners were listening to them. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 through 4, we find the perfect example of endurance of perseverance with our Lord Jesus. In verse 1, he says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who endured such hostilities from sinners against Himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the shame of the cross. He despised the shame, but He endured it. He endured it cheerfully because of the hope that was set before Him. We're living in a different world. Those of us who have any number of years on us, and some of you that are older than me say, you haven't seen what we've seen. 
Young people, we've got an idea of what you're facing. When we were younger, we didn't have to worry about offending someone because we did not agree with homosexuality. I'm sure that you have to deal with that today. We didn't have to worry about offending someone over the topic of abortion. There are a lot of things that have changed so drastically today. And for you to live a godly life in this culture is not easy. We understand that. God understands that. Bear up. Endear cheerfully. Because the Lord will keep His promise and He will reward us. Well, in verse 6, He tells us that the perseverance... 2 Peter 1, verse 6. To perseverance, we are to add godliness. This word godliness is not what most people think. When I'm having that study on chapter 4 or lesson 4 on cost of discipleship, I always ask people, and what is godliness? And it has never failed. I've got the same answer every single time. It means to be like God. That is indirectly correct. <laughs> That's not what godliness means. Not this word. This is a word that actually means reverence, respect, piety towards God. And so the idea, the concept is, is that because of my comprehension of God and who He is and His infinite and awesome characteristics, that I'm awe-stricken by Him. And I'm filled with reverence toward Him. And I express my reverence, my worship, my piety toward Him. That's the idea of godliness. And we can see how that's going to affect us. Because if I'm so moved by God, if I'm so filled with faith, and I'm so moved that, 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 that I'm, if you will, on my knees in reverence to Him, I'm certainly not going to be quick to sin against Him. I'm not going to be quick to dismiss God and to put Him on a shelf. And so we are to add to our perseverance and godliness. Now, in Hebrews 12, where we were a moment ago, in Hebrews 12, verse 28 and 29, he says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. We are to worship our God. We are to serve Him with reverence and with godly fear. In our context, the idea is that we bear up under the trials of life because of our reverence for God and wanting to be like Him and to please Him. So by our godliness, perseverance, Self-control, knowledge, virtue, they're all perfected. They're all brought into harmony by our reverence that we have for God. To godliness, verse 7, he tells us that we are to add brotherly kindness. This is one of those love words, but it's the one that means fraternal affection. It's the love of family. It's the brotherly love. It's from Philadelphia. It's where we get 
the word for Philadelphia. In the Scriptures, in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20, in Philadelphia being the city of brotherly love, in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20, he says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And so, what he's telling us in this Scripture is that we must have a fraternal affection. We must have a brotherly love for one another. In 1 John 5 and verse 1, he says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves Him who begot also loves Him who is begotten of Him. What that's saying is if you love God, and do you love God? If you love God, you're going to love those who are begotten. You're going to love the children of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, he speaks again about brotherly love. He says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. We are to love one another fervently with a pure heart. And this is the product. This is the result of having been baptized into Christ. When we're baptized into Christ, our sins are forgiven. When our sins are forgiven, our soul is purified. And since we've purified our souls in obeying the truth, we are to uh, unto sincere love of the brethren. We're to love one another fervently with a pure heart. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19, he tells us there that we are no longer strangers and pilgrims, but we are members of the household of God. Why is that important to our faithfulness to God? Well, I think it's illustrated well here tonight, isn't it? What an encouragement. What a strengthening to come together with the same faith to worship God and to praise God and then to visit with one another and to strengthen one another when we have love for our brothers. This gives us tremendous strength to endure the trials and the difficulties of life. When people come to services and then they immediately get up and leave, and they have no contact with Christians except indirectly during an hour of worship, they're missing so much of what God has in mind, what God wants for His people. In verse 7 of 2 Peter chapter 1, Verse 7, he tells us that to brotherly kindness we are to add love. Excuse me for just a moment. To brotherly kindness we are to add love. This is that word agape, love. It's the type of love that leads us to put the welfare of others ahead of our own interest. We talked about in our last lesson, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 13. Now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these... Is love. I think I'm going to get through these last few minutes. Someone give me a drink of water, please. But in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 14, remember how he said there that we are to, above all these things, that we are to add love, which is the bond of perfection. Let's pause for just a second. When he says that love is the bond of perfection, I read that for a lot of years not understanding what it meant. 
But years ago, I heard Don Truex preaching a lesson, and he mentioned this passage and explained it. And so I give him the credit for what I'm about to explain to you. When it says that love is the bond of perfection, the idea is is that love is the cement that holds everything else together. Picture with me for a moment that you're going to build a building, you're going to build a wall, and you're going to brick that wall. And you take all of these bricks and you stack them up on one another against the wall and you leave it. How long are those bricks going to stay there? Don't know for sure, but they're not going to stay there forever. But when you put cement and sand together and you make a mortar, was it Monty? Thank you, Monty. When you put mortar in between those bricks, it makes that wall all one unit. It's bonded together and it's not going to come apart. And so when we put on love, which is the bond of perfection, the bond of completeness, it completes all the mercy, the kindness, the long-suffering that the Lord wants so that we are bonded together, that we are indeed one. And so we are to add to our brotherly kindness. We are to add love. Now notice what he says in verse nine, verse 8. As if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is a promise. Now, it's, we got to understand this. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to those who have escaped the pollutions, the corruptions of the world. He is writing to those who have become partakers of the divine nature. In becoming a partaker of the divine nature, He just means that we've been made holy. We've been made righteous as He is. And so, as He writes to these Christians, He says, if you do these things, if you who are washed by the blood of Jesus, if you will do these things and abound in them, you won't be barren and unfruitful. You will be active as we said earlier. You will be doing the will of the Lord. Now, if you don't add these things to your faith, verse 9 says, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. That's the idea that we've gotten away from the Lord. We've drifted away from Him. And we're not adding these things. We're not living a Christian life as well. To And the idea, the concept is, is as we look back to our salvation, it's as if we become short-sighted. We can't even see back and remember what a wonderful day it was when we were washed of our sins, when we were forgiven. We've become even blind, he says. And then in verse 10, Therefore, brethren, because there is that danger, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't want to be worried about my salvation. Neither do I want to deceive myself. 
I don't want to think I'm saved when I'm living a sinful life. If I'm doing things that are wrong and I think, well, the Bible tells me I'm going to go to heaven so I'm good and fine, I've deceived myself and I'm not going to be ready for Jesus' return. But if I'm doing these things, if I'm genuine, if I'm walking in the light, meaning I'm trying to be holy, if I'm confessing my sins, repenting of them, and I'm growing as a Christian, I'm adding virtue, and I'm adding knowledge, and I'm adding more self-control, I'm adding perseverance and godliness, brotherly kindness and love, I'm going to be living a Christian life. And I can say to the Lord, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly. If you're worried about your salvation tonight, if you're concerned that you're not going to go to heaven, you can make that right with the Lord. It's not that we're worried about God keeping His promise. It's that we're worried that we're not dedicated enough. It's that we're worried that we're sinning and we're not doing God's will. If that be the case, what's the answer? If you're a Christian, if you feel regret, then all you've got to do, and I don't mean to say that in a light way, but all you've got to do is repent and ask God to forgive you. And He will keep His promise that He will wash you of your sins. And tomorrow if you sin, feel regret again and ask God to forgive you. And Monday if you sin, try harder. Ask God to forgive you. And He will keep His promise. If we can help you in your relationship with God tonight, if we can help you to walk out of here knowing that if Jesus comes, you're going to go to heaven. If that's what you're wanting, let us know by coming forward while we stand and while we sing. Oh,